As I was prepping for our sermon uh, this week, uh, I was glued to social media and the news, uh, listening to talk radio, uh, clicking on various websites, and um, I wanted to say something about yesterday's appointment of Supreme Court Justice uh, Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, I know that most people in the church, uh, they don't want to hear the church talk politics. Uh, You don't want to hear my political views or you don't want to be told on who to vote for or how to vote. That is, that is not what this is about. I know a lot of times people are afraid of talking politics, even in their own families, because it's so divisive. So let alone, we don't want the church to be divided, and so we don't want to talk about this, especially not during worship. But, but I also don't want us to be a church that functions as a recluse, sheltered, disconnected uh, gathering, from what's really going on in the world. Uh, That was one of the critiques that I received from a fellow sister who was just struggling with the church. And and she saw so many things going on in the world, in our communities. And then she would go to church and no one would talk about it. And no one would pray about whether it's injustice issues or human rights issues or inequity and and, 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 um, police violence, whatever it might be. And instead they walk in and they greet you with a cup of coffee, give you a donut, we're going to sing forever, and blessed be the name of the Lord, and tell you how much God loves you, and send you on your way. And she was just like, church is not connected to, to the reality of life. And so I, I'm not here to make us all activists. I'm not an activist, and it's not in my vision to make all nations an activist church, but I want us to be socially conscious. I want us to have a Christian worldview that goes beyond an hour and a half on a Sunday maybe a weeknight small group, but we want, I want us to see what it means to follow Jesus and see this world and our community, the brokenness of this world, the, the struggles of this world through the lens of Christ and in the light of Scripture. And so um, in talking to a lot of people, I know that there are many who feel angry and disappointed a lot of people feel cynical towards the government in our country right now. And I also know others feel very vindicated. They felt like there was due process and a man should be innocent until proven guilty. So I understand there's a wide range of feelings and responses to Judge Kavanaugh's appointment. I know some feel deeply hurt. I know many feel jaded. And many have stopped caring. And I'm, so, I'm not here to take one side or another, and I'm definitely not an authority when it comes to political processes and the SCOTUS nominations, but I just want to say two things to you as your pastor. The first is this. If you're here today and you've been a victim of sexual assault, um, if anything, over the last two weeks, I think we've seen that your voice matters, that your story matters, that even if it's 50% or 48%, there are people in this country, people in our community, and I believe people in our church that care. And, and I want you to know that. I want to commend Dr. Christine Ford for sharing her story at great personal cost. I want to commend her for having the courage to confront who she believed was her assaulter regardless of how powerful that person may have been. 
regardless of how, many, how much political or social pressure she might have felt to, to be quiet. I want to commend her for telling her story. And whether you believed her or not, maybe some of you are here and you, you were critical of her timing and the delivery of her story. I hope that as a Christian, your first response when someone cries out that they have been sexually assaulted I hope that as a Christian, your first response would be to listen. To listen to that cry, to hear her story, and to see her as a person, to see her in humanity, as a person who was created in the image of God. Okay. Regardless of the political issues and the processes, I, I just hope that we would be the kind of people that would listen first and judge later. If you're here today, and you have been a victim of sexual assault, whether this happened this year, 10, 20, 30 years ago, I, I hope that you would know that we are here for you, that we're here to listen to you, to care for you, to love you, to pray for you, to offer counseling, resources, and whatever we can to be a church family for you. The second thing I want to say is this. For those who are tired and jaded, numb and cynical towards our community and our government. And, and I know a lot of millennials feel this way. Okay? You're just bombarded with too many tweets, too many websites, too much information. And at this point, you like don't care anymore. You don't care anymore and you don't trust anymore. You don't believe anymore. Um, I want to share a passage that I've been meditating upon this week. And it comes from Psalm 46, verses 4 to 7. Psalm 46, verses 4 to 7. I'm going to read it for us. And may God bless the reading of his holy word. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. A holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. And she shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Brothers and sisters, as we see a nation that is so divided and so torn, as we see and experience so much anxiety, anger, right, and confusion, so much posturing and tribal politics, we are worried. We're worried about winning. We're worried about losing. We're worried about our cities and our communities and Supreme Court justices. But I want to tell you that the Bible calls us today to hope in God, to remember who he is and remember that our God is so mighty and he is so powerful that by his voice, the earth melts. That by his utterance, he shatters the most powerful earthly kingdoms. And that includes the United States of America. And our calling as Christians is to live as citizens of his city. This city of God whose foundations will not be shaken. And we are called to bear witness of his reign on this earth. It's a call to remember who we are. It's a call to remember where we belong. And heaven is our home. And it doesn't mean that this city and this community and this country doesn't matter, okay? 
Like I shared before, it's true. Only the kingdom of God matters. Okay. But there's second implication. If you really understand what the kingdom of God is, because of the kingdom, everything matters. Okay. Because of the kingdom, everything matters. And so these are the implications for us. Number one, love your neighbors. Number two, pray for our nation. Care for our community. But do not place your hope in this nation. Do not place your hope in a party or in elective officials. Hope in God. For God alone is our fortress. Our security is not in earthly citizenship. Our security is in kingdom citizenship. And what the world needs to see from us is that kind of resolve, that kind of identity, that we would be a people who are not shaken because the God of Jacob is our fortress. I hope that you would meditate upon this. I hope that maybe as you have discussions with your fellow coworkers or, or students on campus, that you would not just be angry, that you would not just demonstrate moral outrage, but you would also demonstrate hope in a city that's greater than Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., or any city on this earth, that we would place our hope in God. Would you join me in a word of prayer as I pray for our country, as I pray for our leaders in our church? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, your word is a lamp unto our feet. And in this time of distress and confusion, we need your word. We thank you that your word is a light in our darkness, and God, we see darkness all around us. We see the effects of sin manifesting everywhere from poverty to racial, gender relations to justice issues in this country to the highest levels of our government. And Lord, we see the effects of sin and we simply pray right now, God, would you have mercy upon us? Would you have mercy upon us? Lord, I pray for Dr. Christine Ford I pray for the countless other victims of sexual abuse and I pray for your healing to be upon them. I pray for your identity, your grace, your truth, your presence to, to really be established in their lives. I pray for their salvation. I pray for their hope. I pray that we would be able to love strangers and victims of abuse. Lord, I also pray for Justice Kavanaugh, and I pray for the rest of the Supreme Court, and I pray that, that there would be justice, that there would, they would uphold the Constitution, that they would be impartial, that would be filled with wisdom and discernment, that you would protect them, and you would lead, lead, uh, allow Justice Kavanaugh to be a man of integrity, a man of truth, a man that serves this country in a way that honors you. And, 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 and serves the citizens of our nation. Father, lastly, we pray for our church and our, own, and our own hearts. Would you anchor us, God, again, to your word and to your gospel? We hope in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for that. I know that, um, that those uh, conversations are really tense. I heard after the first sermon, everyone was just like not knowing what I was going to say. And so they're like, what is he going to say? Are we going to get in trouble? But um, I'm going to tell you guys what. Uh, in our passage today, as we go into Mark chapter 9, 
Jesus has heavier things to say because he's going to talk about hell. He's going to talk about sin. He's going to talk about holiness. And uh, I hope that more than you guys being interested in what I had to say about a, a simple Supreme Court appointment, that we would care more about what Jesus has to say about heaven, hell, and salvation. And so if you have your Bibles, would you turn to Mark chapter 9, verses 42 to 50? Mark chapter 9, verses 42 to 50. May God bless the reading of his holy and matchless word. Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe, uh, these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to, if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Amen. The word of the Lord. Now, I uh, subbed out my introduction, so there's no second introduction to our text. We're going to get right into it. So the sermon title is Sin and Temptation, and the three points of today's message are this. First, we're going to look at the cause of sin, okay? The cause of sin. Second, the expression of sin, the expression of sin, and finally, the mortification of sin, okay? And mortification means to put to death. To put to death, okay? So we're going to look at where sin comes from. We're going to say, like, what sin looks like or how it manifests. And finally, how do we deal with it? How do we put it away? How do we put it to death? Now, in our passage today, Jesus is talking to his disciples. And he's been in conversation with them since verse 33. And in that passage, he, is, he has just finished rebuking John, okay? John the, the disciple, John the beloved one, right? John the, the disciple that Jesus loved, right? Now, here's what happened. John had wrongly rebuked another Christian who was performing miracles in the name of Jesus. And John didn't know who this person was, okay? And John recognized that this person wasn't like a disciple of Jesus. He wasn't part of the, the, the 12. He wasn't part of the, their tribe. And so they're like, who are you? John was like, who are you to perform miracles in the name of Jesus when you're not even part of us? And so John rebuked this guy, and then Jesus rebuked John. And Jesus was telling John about the importance, the simple importance of living life, doing ministry, serving others in the name of Jesus, right? And not to stop that. And Jesus tells, uh, tells John that even serving somebody with a cup of water in the name of Jesus, out of love, Jesus, that is righteousness. That is righteousness. And so he rebukes John, and that's what happens in this passage. And then Jesus transitions, and he's continuing to speak to John and the disciples, and he, has more, he actually has more rebukes to come. Jesus is spitting fire in chapter 9. And here in our passage, he gives a warning. He gives a warning that if anyone causes one of these little ones to sin, one of these little ones who believe in him to sin, that it would be better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and just drown in the sea, okay? Drown in the sea than to stumble a little one. Now, whenever I had read this passage, um, I got confession. I read it wrong for 
37 years of my life. Actually, I've been reading for 37 years. I'm 37 years old, so whatever. As long as I've been reading the passage, every time I read like little ones, I was always just assuming that Jesus was talking about children, right? Don't stumble the children, right? Don't lead the children into sin. And if you do, you should just go and drown yourself. And that's what I thought Jesus was saying. But uh, that was actually the wrong interpretation. Every commentary I read, okay, um, told me that Jesus is actually referring to Christians who may be young in their faith. Christians, people who believe in Jesus, but they're just spiritual babies, spiritual children, right? And so verse 42 is actually a warning to John and the disciples to not stumble other believers, not lead and allow other believers to sin, right? It's not just about children. It's about young Christians, right? And Jesus's point is this. Out of pride and self-centeredness, we all have a tendency to see the sins of others while forgetting the sins within us. Okay. Jesus has a great and famous parable where he says, you guys, you love to take out the specks in other people's eyes while you have a plank in yours. You guys are familiar with that. Jesus teaches on that. He's rebuking the Pharisees right there. And um, that's just so real to all of us. We love to accuse one another. We love to identify one another's sin when in reality we have a plank in our own. My friends and I, um, we used to tease each other and call each other plank eyes. When we caught each other in hypocrisy, we're like, oh, you plank guy. That's the epitome of Christianese, right? When you're using the Bible for disses. But that's how we were. I was going to say that's how big of losers we were. But um, it's cool to quote the Bible. Um, and so we would just call each other plank guys. And, and, but, but Jesus is bringing us back to that kind of awareness. We pick the specks out of our, uh, the eyes of others and ignore the planks in ours. Now, isn't that true of you? It's so easy to get upset and bent out of shape at others. When your bosses are overbearing, when your bosses make unreasonable demands upon you, you just criticize them and you see them as hypocrites. You see them as like, like uh, slave drivers. When our spouses are passive aggressive towards us, when we see hypocrisy in our spouses, you identify that immediately when your friends gossip about you or when your friends are being two-faced and where am I? You, you pick that up immediately. We're so sensitive to the sins of others. When your children are disobedient, where's you out, right? Where's you out? These things drive us crazy, right? They get our blood boiling. But when it comes to your own sins, how do you respond? The reality is, for a lot of us, you're not that sorry. You're not that embarrassed. You're not that bothered. You're not very passionate about correcting or dealing with your own sins. You're not serious about combating your sins. You're just serious about getting that driver to stop tailgating you or getting your boss to stop overworking you or getting your spouse to stop judging you and being, you know what I'm saying? So we're, we're so passionate about other people's sins and then we're so indifferent towards ours and Jesus is telling us that we need to flip that. That, it, that is not the posture, that is not the heart of a Christian. See, this is a much needed message for the church today. You see, in our culture, we have become a people of moral outrage and victimization. Now, I want to say there are times when that is justified. There are times when there is systemic oppression in our community. There are definitely times when, when somebody of power is taking advantage of somebody who is weak. But 
even in spite of that, we must remember that sin is not merely something that happens to us. It's something that comes from within us. Let me say that one more time. You and I cannot define sin as something that happens to us, as a circumstance, as a bad event, as somebody else's fault. We need to remember that sin is something that comes from us. Our greatest problem is not the external sin that affects us. It's the inward sin that corrupts us, okay? You and I, we sin because we're sinners, okay? We have to remember that reality. And this is why in our passage, Jesus makes it clear about the cause of sin. It's your hand. It's your foot. It's your eye. You see that? He's so, he uses that second person, and he's so direct. It's your hand that causes you to sin. Your eyes and your feet. You cannot blame the internet for tempting you to look at explicit websites. What are you going to say? Oh, it's the internet's fault that I clicked on that? You can't blame your credit card debt, credit card for your financial debt. Amex made me do it. What are you talking about, right? And, we're, and there's some of us that are in incredible amounts of financial credit card debt with absorbent APRs, and you can't control yourself. Is it the credit card company's fault? They entice you with those points and a, and a trip to Europe and upgrades? No, it's, you're the one who bought it. You're the one who spent it. You're the one who lacked self-control. You can't blame your job for making you angry and discontent. You see, sin can be aroused from circumstances. Sin can be aroused and awakened from situations, but the real root and source and cause of it, it comes from within us. And this has to be our perspective towards sin. This is Jesus' perspective towards sin because here's the thing. If you get it wrong, if you treat sin as something that happens to you all the time, right, then it's going to affect and corrupt your view of Jesus. It's going to corrupt your understanding of the gospel. What does it mean for Jesus to save you and deliver you from your sin? If you see it primarily as an external problem, then you're going to want Jesus to save you externally. As if his redeeming work is to save you from difficult people, stressful situation painful experiences. Brothers and sisters, you keep living, right? Difficult people are always going to be in your life, right? Stressful situations are always going to be in your life. Painful experiences are always going to be part of our, of our narrative. And if you're like, Jesus, your mission, your job is to get me out of that. Brothers and sisters, you and I will be very disappointed Christians. We will be very frustrated Christians. You see, instead, Jesus tells us that salvation, his salvation is not shallow, it's not temporary, it's not circumstantial, okay? His salvation is holistic and it's complete and it begins with the inner person, it begins with the heart. And this is why Jesus, in the beginning of the gospel of Mark, he announces the gospel. What does he say? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He doesn't say, pack your bags, get ready, I'm gonna move you guys up. We're going to upgrade all of our standards of living. We're going to be coasting and we're going to be cruising in life. No, he doesn't say, I'm here to change your circumstances. Jesus says, I'm here to change your life. I'm here to change your heart, but it begins with you repenting and confessing of your sin and realizing that the kingdom of God is at hand. He came to save us from ourselves by calling us to repentance. Do you see the cause of sin in your life? It's your eyes. 
It's your hands, it's your heart, it's your pride. Okay, that's the cause of sin. And if we get this wrong, we're gonna get Jesus wrong. If we get this wrong, we're gonna misunderstand the application, the grace, and the power of the gospel in our lives. Now, let me go ahead and say, there are times God delivers us out of circumstances, okay? God can heal, God can provide, it could be unemployment. You could be on academic probation. You, you could have somebody who is, yeah, sick and, and hurting, and you just pray, and God miraculously provides, but there are times when he doesn't. There are times when he doesn't. And in those moments where he doesn't come through, and you fail that class, or you lose your job, or your business goes under, does it mean that Jesus has failed you? And brothers and sisters, the answer is no. Because those are temporary. Those are circumstantial. And what Jesus does is give you eternal life. And just like we read in the beginning, we become citizens of an eternal, greater kingdom. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. Next, as we talked about the cause of sin that comes from us, we need to look at the expression of sin. You see, whenever we talk about sin, we describe it primarily as a heart issue. Not merely as outward behavior, but inward idolatry, and this is absolutely true, okay? The fundamental place where the battle of sin takes place, it's in our hearts, okay? But we also need to understand what sin looks like when it is expressed, how sin manifests, right? And how temptation is aroused through our physical bodies. You see, the Bible tells us that mankind, that men and women, humanity, we are body and soul. We are body and soul. And there is this constant tension between the heart and the flesh, between our body, our spirits, and our bodies. There's this con- now, I don't recommend his music, but um, R. Kelly, he talks about this tension. He captures this tension perfectly when he sings this line. He sings this line. It's pretty famous. He says, my mind is telling me no, but my body, my body's telling me yes. Right? And we all giggle right? But we've also experienced that, have we not? Those moments where you're like, I I probably shouldn't eat that, but I can't stop myself, right? I probably shouldn't drink that, but I'm pretty thirsty right now. We go to Las Vegas or a casino, we're like, I probably shouldn't bet this amount of money at this moment, but you know what? Let's go for it, right? YOLO, right? And, and we've all had those moments where we're telling ourselves we shouldn't. But then something happens. Your body says, I-, I want it. And you crave it and you desire it. Even the Apostle Paul experienced the tension between body and spirit, right? Heart and, and, and hands. And Paul, he says, what I want to do, I don't do. And what I do, I don't want to do right? He's like, I want to be a man of prayer. I want to evangelize. I want to live righteously for God. But but man, I keep falling short and I keep making sinful, selfish, prideful decisions. And the things I'm trying to avoid and things I'm trying to fight, I keep going into those places. And Paul finds this, oh, wretched man I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? My heart wants to live for Jesus. Yet my body is still chasing after this world. We have all experienced that tension. The Pharisees experienced this. Here's what the Pharisees did. They chose one. 
They said, okay, dealing with both is too hard. We're going to focus on one. And the Pharisees were often guilty of addressing the outward expressions of sin without dealing with the inward heart. And that's why Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. He says, you guys are whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside. You're clean on the outside. You're doing all the right things, saying all the right things. But inside your hearts are dead. Inside your hearts are far from loving God and loving his people, right? Now, where do we line up on this tension spectrum? I would contend that many of us today, we're on the opposite end of the Pharisees. You see, we love focusing on the heart. It's easy for us to confess our hearts, right? We go to God and we pray and we say, Lord, purify my heart. And then the song comes up and we're like, Lord, I give you my heart. We listen to messages about the importance of Jesus and the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of our hearts. And we say, yeah, totally. It's all about the heart. And you know what we do? We don't do enough to correct the sins of our hands. We don't have the discipline. We don't have the sacrifice. We don't have the courage. We don't have the commitment to take up our cross daily to deny ourselves and follow Jesus, right? We're not a people who will cut off our hands or cut off our feet or gouge out our eyes. We don't want to make sacrifices. We just want to like believe and love and trust and know, right? Sounds like it's like such millennial language, like just trust, right? That's our posture. I think we've overemphasized grace or maybe we've enabled spiritual laziness in our lives. But here in Mark 9, Jesus is awakening us to both realities, to deal both with the outward sin and the inward sin. And here, he's just reminding us and pushing back on us who are so tempted to just lean on grace and be so lazy and indifferent towards our actions. He's saying we need to take on our outward sins, the sins of our flesh, with the utmost seriousness and conviction. Brothers and sisters, I don't say this in judgment. I'm saying this to myself as well. It is not okay for you to keep on sinning. I think there's a culture of enabling sin in our lives. You're in a small group. You're having coffee with a friend, and we're so about just like affirming one another. Someone will say something that's pretty dark, pretty deep about their sin, right? Maybe their relationship with their boyfriend or girlfriend Right? inappropriate things that they're doing with their finances and their company. And rather than speak grace and truth, you know what we do? We say, oh, it's okay. It's okay to keep watching porn. It's okay to keep sleeping with your girlfriend, you know, grace. It's okay to keep cheating your clients. It's okay to not tithe. It's okay to, 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 to whatever it might be. And there's this weird enabling culture that we tend to have because we don't want to we don't want to be judgmental. We don't want to be critical. We don't want to be the Pharisee. And so we just tell each other it's okay. And they could be spitting lies and confessing sin. And we say it's okay. And what Jesus is telling us is it's actually not okay to keep on sinning. He says if your hand causes you to sin, what should you do? Cut it off. And if your foot causes you to sin, you should cut it off. And if your eye causes you to sin, you should gouge it out. Because it's better to enter into the kingdom of God maimed and crippled than it is to go to hell 
all in one piece, to be whole in hell. Now, obviously, Jesus isn't telling us to literally maim ourselves, okay? He isn't telling us to mutilate ourselves. He's speaking metaphorically and in hyperbole. Um, Did you guys know that in the past, Christians have actually taken him literally? Um, The most famous case of this is uh, an early church father named Origen of Alexandria. And he was really, I mean, really committed to God, right? Really committed to living for Christ. And he was struggling with sexual temptation, right? So what did he do? He took Jesus' words, literally, and he had himself emasculated so that he would no longer suffer from sexual temptation. Now, the uh, Council of Nicaea, uh, they condemned this. They said, whoa, you went overboard too far, right? Too far. And besides, here's the thing. Mutilation doesn't work. Because if you're a pervert and you struggle with lust and you say, I love Jesus so much, I'm going to get rid of my right eye, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to look with my left, right? You're going to get LASIK, make sure your contacts are in, you're going to patch that up, and and you're going to look with your left. And if you're a thief and you're doing inappropriate things with your hands and you cut off your right, you're still going to grab with your left. And so mutilation doesn't deal with sin in the way that, yeah, that we desperately need. So Jesus is speaking in metaphor, and he's speaking in hyperbole, and his point is this. With your hands, consider what are you doing? What is it that you are doing with your hands? What is it that you are reaching for? Is it sin? Is it this world? Is it self, or is it Christ and his kingdom? With your feet, where are you going? Where are your feet taking you, and are they taking you into darkness? taking you into places you should not go that will not glorify God, that will not reflect the life of a disciple? Or are you going as God leads? With your eyes, what are you watching? What are you gazing upon? What are you meditating upon? What are you taking in? One pastor said, there are very few sins in our lives that our eyes have not first taken in. Your eyes are such a powerful gateway to your mind, such a powerful gateway to your heart, question is, what are you watching? What are you setting your gaze upon? And this is why the scripture says, fix your eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of your faith. That is how powerful your eyes are. And Jesus is simply saying, what is it that you are setting your body, your physical body upon? Are you using your body in such a way to arouse sin? Or are you using your bodies to reflect righteousness? Guys, this is so real. Um, I had a friend, a pastor who... um, Godly, godly men. Man, one of the most godly pastors that I personally know. And then he and his wife, they, they got an HBO Go account, right? And he heard Sopranos was like really popular. Anyone watch Sopranos? I confess. Don't, okay, one, one like that. I've, I've watched a couple of episodes of Sopranos. Tony Soprano curses like a sailor, right? But he watched the full first season. You know what happened to him? At the end of that season, he wanted to cuss. Because, I mean, he was not a cursor, he, he was not a man of foul language, but over and over again, every night, hearing Tony Soprano drop F-bombs and everyone just cursing one another in this like mafia, gangster, New Jersey accent, it just made him also want to speak in that language, in the, express himself in that manner, right? And it was just him setting his earthly vessels, I, yeah, physical vessels upon earthly sinful things, and that, that affected him. Brothers and sisters, do not be naive right? Do not be naive and and think that, oh, no, 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 those things won't affect me. What I watch won't affect me. Where I go won't affect me. Burning Man, Coachella, no problem. I'll be pure, 
Not that you can't go to that. Just don't be naive. Think twice. Just think. Think, right? Um, Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6, verse 12. He says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Brothers and sisters, your body, your physical body is not meant to be neutral, okay? It's not neutral. It's not amoral. It's meant to be an instrument of righteousness, but it's one or the other. You're either going to use your hands, use your words, use your thoughts, use your eyes, use your ears, use your feet, either for God's glory or you're going to use it for sin and selfishness and worldliness. There's no middle ground. This is what Paul is telling us, that our hearts, our minds, our body, everything about us was meant to be for God and an instrument of his glory. The redeeming work of Jesus, it's holistic, guys. He came to save all of you, body and soul. And for you and I to grow as a disciple, it's food to grow in both ways. To learn more about the Bible, yes. To have your heart filled with the love and grace of God, to start loving God and loving others in the way that reflects Jesus, yes. But also so that your hands and your body would start obeying God and not sin. To experience the lordship of Jesus, the leading of Jesus in your hands, and not just sin, and not just your autonomy, and not just your will, but experience Jesus' will through your body. That's what God wants for us. Now, here's a question. How do we deal with sin? Okay. How do we deal with sin? How do we put sin to death? And this is one of the most important questions in the Christian life. How do we fight it? I'm going to go ahead and tell you one thing. Um, It is a lifelong fight. It is a lifelong fight. Um, For as long as I can remember being a Christian, I've tried to battle pride. For as long as I've been a Christian, I've tried to uh, guard my words and guard my speech because I'm just so like off the cuff, ready to criticize, ready to judge, right? When I was younger, I was ready to curse, right? And, And those are things that I for my entire life, I've been wrestling with, so I just want to let you guys know that. But uh, I have two points on how to deal with sin. Very practical. The first is this. Just as sin takes a physical expression in our bodies, so also should sanctification be evident in our bodies. Okay? Let me just say that one more time. So sin, when it's in your heart, when it's in your life, you can see it. You see it in their words. You see it in their actions. You see it in their spending. You see it in what they watch and all that they do. There's a physical manifestation of sin in our lives, okay? If there is sanctification, if God is working, if the Holy Spirit is in you and Jesus is your Lord and Savior, then there should be a sign, a symbol, a fruit of sanctification in your body as well. Does that make sense? Yeah, right? So if I have the flu and I'm coughing, right, and I'm sneezing, and I have a, I'm sweating, if there's medicine that I take, those symptoms should start subsiding. I should start physically getting healthier and not just like, oh, my heart's healthy, right? I should stop coughing. You know, it makes sense, right? And that's the simple point because too many of you, you live in a truncated Christian bubble. Your heart, your intentions, oh, it's for God. But your hands, your actions, your flesh, it's all in this world. 
And Jesus says, that's not the way it's supposed to be. If I'm really present in your life, if the Holy Spirit is really working in your life, and there, it doesn't mean you're perfect, but it means you're growing. And there is change. And Jesus reminds us today that we have to seriously consider what it means to put sin to death. Guys, um, I'm a Calvinist. I'm reformed. I'm big on grace. I'm big on sovereignty. You know what words make us Calvinists and reformed believers nervous? Effort, right? Work, sacrifice. Because we're like, oh, not us, you, God. So there's this real tendency to be passive in our lives so that we can just give all the glory to God and God's going to act. But Jesus actually tells us, no, 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 no. In sanctification, in discipleship, there is a responsibility that we must bear. There is a cross that we must bear. We must be active, and intentional about denying ourselves and taking up our crosses to follow Jesus. This is the question. Is that present in your life? Or are you on just cruise control, spiritual auto drive? Jesus is crystal clear. For those who do not fight sin, hell awaits you. Not my threat. Jesus is truth. Right? Go back and read that. What is he saying? If you don't hate sin enough to cut off your hand, if you're not willing to, to cut off your foot or gouge out your eye in, in this battle against sin, if you're going to be the kind of person who claims to be a Christian, but you just, you just live in sin and you don't try to change and you're unapologetic, you know what's awaiting you? Unquenchable fire. Gehenna, a place of death. Gehenna is a, a, is a Greek word for uh, uh, this Hebrew valley. This Hebrew valley where the kings of Israel, they sacrificed their sons in idol worship. And Israel started to do that as well. And that became such a cursed place. It became such a cursed place. Then after that, they stopped doing human sacrifices, but they just started to put trash there and they burned their trash. And there would be these ashes and fires smoldering constantly from all of the trash of Israel. And then they would start dumping their dead bodies. So it wasn't just a trash hump, but it was a dead body like like where they were cremating bodies as well. And that became the symbol of hell, this unquenchable, constant fire. And that's what Jesus says is awaiting those of us who don't take sin seriously, who live with sin, right? Um, I don't want to sugarcoat Jesus' words for you today. The scriptures are clear. The wages of sin is death. And if we continue in sin with no repentance, no confession, how can you and I have any assurance that we're actually Christian? There are a lot of people who claim to be Christian. They know the four points of, you know, the gospel message. You know, they've grown up in the church. They can say the right things, and they think they believe all the right things. But if there's no change in their life, how can we affirm them? How can we approve them? How can we baptize them? How can we be sure that they are actually Christian? You know what a, a simple Christian testimony is? Because we do confirmation and baptism testimonies, and everyone always asks, what do I say? How do I give my testimony? Three simple things. First, what was your life like before Jesus? Second, how did you meet Jesus? How did you come to understand the gospel? And thirdly, you know what the third part of your testimony is? What difference has it made? What difference has Jesus made? 
What difference does the Holy Spirit make in your life when he takes up residence in you, when you are indwelt as the temple of God with the Spirit of God? If there is no difference, I don't think he's there, right? Every tree will be known by its fruit. This is what Jesus is reminding us very, very soberly. Okay, To fight sin, to want to see and labor to see sanctification evident in our bodies. Now, um, before we can fight sin, this is the second application point. Okay, And this is so important. This is probably the most important. Before we can fight sin, we must be forgiven of sin. Before you and I can take on sin and try to mortify it and put it to death and slay the sins in our lives that have been haunting us and burdening us for the last days, weeks, months, and years, before we can do that, we must first be forgiven of our sins. You see, we don't fight it to get forgiven. We fight because we are forgiven. Paul, the apostle, he talks about this in Romans. So this is our last passage. I'm going to end it here. This is what Paul says in Romans 12. Uh, verse 1, okay? He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Okay, what is Paul saying here? Yes, you need to be a living sacrifice. Yes, you need to set yourself and your entire life as an offering to God. Yes, your mortal body all needs to be an act of worship and dedicated to his righteousness, but that is coming from the mercy of God. That's a response. That's a result of the mercy of God demonstrated and shown to you in Jesus Christ. You see, if you keep reading, if you've read all of Romans, you know Romans chapter 1 to chapter 11, it is the gospel it is the gospel message telling us what sin is, who Jesus is, what it means for him to die and atone for our sins, and how we, by grace through faith alone, can receive everlasting life and the fullness that Jesus offers in the gospel. And Romans 12 is now the application. That's the turning point. Okay? We have to know this. Why do we fight sin? Because of the gospel. Where do we find the strength and courage and power and resources to defeat sin in our lives? Because of the gospel. Because of the Holy Spirit, so brothers and sisters, if you are here today and you feel like you're like convicted, you're like, Pastor Mike, you spoke truth, you spoke fire, whatever it might be, and you're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fight sin. I've been living with these sins too much. Your first move needs to be to the cross. Your first move needs to be laying down those sins to Christ and remembering that Jesus has paid for them in full that Jesus alone has the power to free you from your sins, that the Holy Spirit alone has the power to allow you to defeat those sins and let your fight against sin flow from the forgiveness that comes from Calvary. Let's go there. Let's be these kinds of people. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the gospel message. We thank you that in Jesus, all of our sins are paid for, all of our wretchedness is atoned for. And in Jesus, you give us a new life and a new identity to become your sons and to become your daughters. And I thank you that your Holy Spirit takes residence up within us. Lord, I want to pray for myself and for every brother and sister here. May we experience the presence and the leading of your Holy Spirit in our lives that as we experience sin, 
that your Holy Spirit would give us a distaste, a dissatisfaction, a, 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 a desire against those sins. May your Holy Spirit truly give us an appetite for your holiness and your righteousness. Father, I want to pray for anyone here who's struggling with deep-seated, long-suffering addictions. First, I pray for your mercy over them. And next, I pray for your help, for you to show them grace, and for you to guide them into freedom. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray.